This podcast is produced during the pandemic and hence the audio quality is home produced. Welcome to Beyond the Lines, a podcast by Roli about books, culture and our times. Main aapke dukh mein shamil hu. Over a year of the pandemic and still going only a lot nightmarish deadly and devastating over a year of uncertainty and despair brief moments of hope and the illusion of the return of normalcy 70 days of lockdown one of the harshest and longest in the world in 2020 and then some this year in various shapes duration color and size the largest migration of people on foot since the bloody partition of india and pakistan coronavirus infections are continuously receding in the Indian subcontinent. These are just some of the ways to describe over a year of the COVID-19 pandemic that wreaked havoc on India's people and the world. Corona ke khilaf desh aaj phir ek bahut badi ladai lad raha Back in March 2020 and after the prime minister spoke to the people several times since the virus spread throughout the world. Usually at 8 p.m. and then the time kept shifting, and everyone paid attention initially, or at least those with smartphones and television sets did. And then the corona wave of the second wave came. At a mere four hours' notice, the nation went into a lockdown. We were told to curtail the spread of the virus and help up the health infrastructure in order to cope for what was to come. A year on, and the one question everybody seems to be asking is, how did the Indian state fail so terribly at preparing for the second wave? At the beginning of 2021, there were signs. There were signs that things were improving. A promising spring was around the corner. Bhavishyamani ki gayi thi ki puri dunya mein corona se sabse prabhavit desh Bharat hoga. Only everything came crumbling down, exposing how callously India let this slide out of its hands. Over two summers, India walked to the same cycles of news. The central government was doing absolutely nothing to ensure that the vaccination policy was equitable and that the majority of people in our country were vaccinated. According to Ministry of Health numbers, India has overtaken the United States in terms of the number of vaccine doses administered. आज चारों तरफ मैंने ऐसी तबाह पहली बार देखी है बट देर आर ऑलरेडी अलार्म बेल्स रिंगिंग अबाउट द पॉसिबिलिटी ऑफ अ थर्ड वेव कमिंग सून पीपल फॉलोइंग सिक इन होर्ड्स अ शॉर्टेज ऑफ बेड्स मेडिसिन्स इमरजेंसी वार्ड्स एंबुलेंसेस टेस्टिंग किट्स इंफॉर्मेशन सिस्टम्स ऑक्सीजन द लिस्ट कुड गो ऑन Many died on roads after unsuccessfully looking for somewhere to get themselves and their loved ones treated for hours days on end. Countless people went out of work, schools, homes, land, assets, morgues, crematoriums, burial grounds ran out of space and streets and parks and terraces became sites of burial and cremation. Bodies abandoned and floated on the Ganges and Yamuna. Businesses shut down India's poor only got poorer depending on what class caste gender and location you belong to you experience the same great leveler albeit differently 
During the first wave, one class of people were left to invent ways to keep themselves busy, such as making banana breads or dalgona coffee. Another were being run over by speeding trains in the scorching summer of the first lockdown. The virus did not see color or identity. The second wave of the pandemic ruptured through this class divide. The rich, middle income, and the working classes alike could not find beds when they needed one. The uber rich, if they had the opportunity to, flew out of the country just in time. If you have the money and the wherewithal, and homes or yachts in countries where the pandemic is contained, it is natural you may feel like leaving this country. When we recorded, produced, and did the post-production for season one of our podcast, we did not anticipate the sheer scale of the second wave, and hence none of the preceding episodes tend to reflect on this dreadful summer. And since we talk about books, culture, and our times on the show, we thought it necessary to do a pandemic tapes episode to make sense of the events we have witnessed and are perhaps still in the middle of. My guests today are Anu Bhuyan, who covers healthcare at IndiaSpend.com. Shautik Biswas, India correspondent and features and analysis editor at BBC India. Writer and surgeon Dr. Kalpana Swaminathan, who writes with Dr. Ishrit Sagar under pseudonym Kalpish Ratna. Anu, Shautik and Kalpana are also contributors, among other contributors, to a publisher's set of essays titled The Pandemic and the Plunder, India Under Lockdown, forthcoming in the fall of 2021 by Roli Books. I am Chirag Thakkar and this is Beyond the Lines. Welcome to Beyond the Lines, Anu, Shautik and Kalpana. I want to start by asking Kalpana and then bring in the other two speakers. Do you suppose we have processed and made sense of these events of 2020 and this year as yet, or might it take us much longer than we imagined to fully come to terms with it, make sense of it? Is this what we would call one of those big events of an early century of our times, such that there is likely to be this line, this big divide, in a manner of speaking, on the one side of which is life before COVID and life after COVID? Kalpana? That is really a billion-dollar question, Chirak. There should be, if we think logically, such a divide. Because there are two ways of looking at what we're undergoing right now. The first reaction is one of utter despair because of the mess we have made of things. But there is a flip side. It has shown up certain scientific truths that prompt us to change a lot of ways so that the destructiveness of the Anthropocene can actually be encouraged to even attempt a U-turn. It is possible. Now, let me explain that a little further. This pandemic was not unexpected. We have been anticipating a respiratory viral pandemic ever since SARS 2003. We didn't know that it's going to take this particular shape. However, it is not very different from the 1918 influenza pandemic. See, right now in the world's popular telling, it bears no comparison to anything that one has experienced within one's lifetime. But if you look at just this century, this very young century, as you see, 
we have seen a lot of outbreaks which have had the capacity to become pandemics and some which actually have, like SARS. MERS COVID-2 was even worse, but it limited itself. But the fact is, when a respiratory virus takes on the form of an outbreak, epidemic, and finally pandemic, it's simply foolish to apply measures of thought and action which were based, say, actually in 1348, we're now in 2021. You're using the same ideas which you use or which Europe used in 1348 to curtail the Black Death. That was a different illness. This is a different illness. That was, for God's sake, 600 years ago. There were all these graphics which were circulating everywhere in 2020, which gave people the idea of the virus, you know, invading the map like a slow strain. They were all beautiful graphics, if you believe them. Looking at these graphics, we lost sight of what was right in front of our eyes. We had no understanding of the ground reality. Everything that India has experienced in 2021 was easily predictable by March 2020. We wrote about the possibilities of exactly this developing in our book, which we published in September, because we started following this pandemic before it was a pandemic, right from the first story of the outbreak at Wuhan, right from then on. And it was amply clear to us that there were so many discrepancies in the way, um, in the global approach to the problem. India's great stupidity was to align itself with the Western model of thinking in 2020. Now, the ferocious lockdown, which was clamped down, caused more deaths than probably the virus has caused in 2021. I think all of us, whether we are doctors or not, we completely were aware at every point of the immense suffering that people were forced into. The main problem that occurred in 2020 was a lack of transparency. And in 2021, uh, the main problem has been just sheer stupidity. The information given to people has been so totally wrong and skewed. The panic that people have been pushed into has been because of this disinformation. Now, the truth of the matter is that this is a disease that affects people who are at a disadvantage already. This is a pandemic superimposed on an existent pandemic, which everybody neglects. The other pandemic, the hidden one, which is the pandemic of inflammation. The global population is over the last two decades in a state of advanced inflammation. We have obesity, we have heart disease, we have diabetes. All these increase the vulnerability of the body to all infections, which makes a coronavirus, which is actually just another respiratory virus, assume the form which is truly macabre by pushing the body's response into an aggravated inflammation. So smart thing would have been in 2020 to identify people who are at a disadvantage in the population, take care of them. They would not have died now in 2021. That makes me deeply, deeply angry. Uh, let me bring in Shautik here. What do you reckon, Shautik? How could the Indian state have failed so terribly at managing this, in anticipating the second wave? Look, I think the Indian state would have possibly failed anyway. You know, 
any government would have really struggled given that we've underinvested in uh, public health for decades and we have really not listened to scientists you know while you know when we're forming health public health policy so i think it's been decades and decades of neglect uh last year we listened to what was happening in italy and new york and europe and we went in for these world's most kind of harshest lockdown and we didn't have done that now what does that prove that essentially proves that uh, we had not built up uh, capacity in our public health system and i talk about capacity intellectual capacity in our public health system as well there is intellectual capacity and there is also the infrastructural capacity and both of them were lacking and by early march this year we were tom toming that we were in the end game of the pandemic uh, the prime minister was kind of saying that we are you know an example to the world in international cooperation we were shipping doses of vaccines to foreign countries uh, we were crowing about a vaccine diplomacy so i think this euphoria uh, was uh, which which was kind of uh, very populist in nature at beating the virus i think that was really something which we could have avoided and which would have possibly uh, led us to kind of prepare a little bit better because i think the way we were completely taken off guard or off guard by the fact that people were begging outside hospitals and dying on the streets and um, starving for oxygen you know last february march i was talking to a doctor friend of mine in calcutta and very recently i think this is in end february he said look guys you know if this comes to india and if it will and this is last february people will be dying on the roads you know and he's a critical care intensivist in calcutta and i said oh my god you seriously believe that and he said yes so it's not that people didn't know and you know kalpana herself said that you know the doctors they kind of uh, they knew something was happening but uh, i think they were caught off guard largely because of uh, a combination of uh, underinvestments in public health lack of scientific temper and uh, the fact that we began to think that this pandemic could be cured literally cured in 21 days which was the initial thing and then we had a 70 day lockdown and then the cases started coming down over a five month period starting i think september last year and we decided we're out of towns and then and this is massive disinformation that that we eliminated the pandemic when there were clear signs from february this year it's very sad but it's not entirely uh, surprising that's that's what it is Thank you, Shortik. So, since both Kalpana and you mentioned, I have a quick follow-up question before I move on to Anu. What could we have done differently if we shouldn't have really mimicked in mind the Western world, the wealthier nations, in how we tried to manage the pandemic's first wave? What should or could we have done differently? Briefly, if any of you want to come in here, can I come in just please, please uh, quickly? Uh, well, we kind of. Uh, knew uh, that this was a patchwork pandemic you know it was not happening at the same intensity all over the country this is a huge country even in america even in italy it was not kind of there were not outbreaks across the country at the same time we could have had localized uh, lockdowns we could have had localized nuance much more strategic lockdowns i think that was where we went really 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 wrong kalpana anything to add to that yes i do i agree with shothik's point of view that it was a patchwork pandemic to begin with but there are a couple of facts that uh, we failed to notice or the world has failed to notice first this is a respiratory virus and it is any virologist will tell you that viruses are everywhere so you can't really try to stop the virus now by 2020 april at least we knew exactly 
how this virus acts within the body. We knew. The science was all there. So our efforts in India, before we had that, should have been to see that people are safeguarded from that. Now, that's not so difficult to do. For instance, if you're diabetic, you're under watch. If you have a number of, if you have tuberculosis, you're under watch. So you have a number of illnesses that you can safeguard people about. You say, okay, you're on my critical list. I'm watching you. Second, this is a respiratory virus. And respiratory viruses are clearly linked to the particulate matter in the ambient air. Now, uh, this is something that we've written about in our book extensively. And it starts from two pictures that all of you would have noticed. The first picture is from Wuhan at the time of, out, of the outbreak, the first day of the outbreak. Take up any picture of Wuhan and you'll see a completely murky sky. Fast forward into mid-January and you'll find a clear sky. By that time, the outbreak had settled down after their brutal lockdown. Now, the conclusion was that the lockdown also, as an added benefit, cleared the air. But the truth also is clearing the air stopped your outbreak. Now, India has got, especially Delhi, has got the worst record of atmospheric pollution. The winter months are when grain burning is maximum. When grain burning is maximum, you have P2.5 uh, particulates heavy in the air. You can quite expect, therefore, a worsening of the situation by March or April, which is exactly what happened. This was to be anticipated. Your first job in any respiratory disease, you manage your pollution, clean up your air. Today, it's being hotly debated, where did the virus come from? You know, all the stories that are going, and I don't want to enter into that. The fact which remains unchallenged is that bats carry coronaviruses. It may or may not be linked to this particular form of virus, but they are nature's reservoir. Bats are everywhere. The more trees you fell anywhere, the more bats you disturb, the more viruses will invade your life. They're already there, but they turn nasty when they come to you. COVID-19 is not only about the virus, it's about us. It's about our bodies and how our bodies respond to the virus. Now, thank God there's a vaccine. But supposing we didn't have it, then you would have to think along the lines which I just outlined because it's the only way left for you. Instead of which, we have done incredible follies, like pushing drugs at people, all sorts of rubbish is being pushed even now. I mean, these are prescription drugs, which are just given to people who are asymptomatic. And what is the result? You have a black fungus and a green fungus and a pink fungus uh, all erupting all over the place. It's not unexpected. I tell you, all doctors have reached the point of their death. We know that nobody is listening to the voice of reason. Thank you, Kalpana. I think in terms of the origins of the virus, now there is there seems to be a lot of the return of the earlier hypothesis of the lab leak theory, which is finding currency and uh, a greater, in that sense, freedom and space to discuss. But I want to bring in Anu here. Anu, you're someone whose daily grind and routine it is to cover healthcare. So what is a healthcare journalist's daily life like? Can you walk us through some of it? And what have the last year and a half been for you like? Yeah, I think it's been a crazy year for health reporters. And right now we're in a situation where I think everybody's a health reporter, because if you cover automobiles, you will be reporting on how the sector is 
struck by the pandemic and you know if you if you cover insurance you'll be reporting on how covid has affected the insurance sector so everybody's kind of a health reporter but people like me who were covering healthcare before and continue to cover it it's it's now two years of me only covering covid not even healthcare so i really want to know what was happening in all of those areas that i reported very aggressively on just about two years ago and uh, you know clearly the state has probably dropped the ball on a lot of those things and journalists have also dropped the ball we don't really know what's happening in any other area of healthcare now other than what's happening with covid so there's definitely been a sort of cannibalization of anything else in healthcare by covid the day is uh, i mean i think now we've just kind of normalized it but uh, it was very difficult in the early months to be keeping up with what was happening in india and there's really so much drama that happens here and it's part of our reality it's it's not even fiction it's part of our reality but also having to keep up with what was happening abroad because i think countries were being very influenced by each other i think ashotik was pointing out as well uh, but also having to keep up with science and that uh, is typically not something that i think general news reporters in a general news publication have had to do uh, I, we do have something called science reporting which tends to be quite complicated and is done by very very few people there might be one person in a newsroom who's doing it but right now we all kind of had to double up and uh, be able to also read science and understand science which was difficult but i guess it's better that we do it rather than you know the kind of misinformation that we have going around the place because people are selectively reading uh, things or improperly reading things like this current controversy about calf serum being used to make vaccines and, and a lot of people are very confused about that so it's better to have a journalist kind of explain these things you know in the early months and also now i i still see people talking about how one should regulate the amount of news they consume and i think as journalists now this is an absolute occupational hazard and especially if you're a health reporter there is no way to regulate how much news we consume uh death and grief and this morbidity is absolutely real to us in ways that i think other people don't have to face and um, it's a sad disheartening place to be to really interact with the state so closely which is what a journalist does but from a critical point of view and it's heartbreaking i think to interact with the state so closely and see how little things move yeah thank you anu um the past year has also seen a lot of your peers for instance in the media space lose their jobs editions have been wrapped up there've been massive massive job losses pay cuts there've been downsizing across organizations particularly in the media and one of your players Cyril Sam for instance has been documenting this uh, quite meticulously do you want to come and chime in here about the kind of losses and uh, impact on lives uh, in the media space and what that has been like we did see the indian news space take a real hit in the first wave and i have actually been somewhat amused to see how that's actually panned out now uh, in the second wave and in the in in the period between so yes lots of job cuts i think a lot of newsrooms were in some ways waiting for an excuse they were not they, you know even traditional newsrooms had haven't really figured out the model and news organizations were in a bad place even before this pandemic uh, trying to cut flab and uh, the pandemic was really their reason to do it so really really sad cuts across the board even in some of our wealthiest news organizations like times of india and um, now i feel like the news space has actually evolved in some really peculiar ways i think the news space has changed between the first wave and the second wave and we're seeing a lot of flattening i think in terms of journalism kind of becoming content we see line between what one would as job and a senior journalist job and i think a lot of this is evolving 
as a response to uh, this pandemic in terms of consumer behavior and consumer attention to the news and uh, we're seeing you know guys who have no relation to the news industry at all but developing news products that are wildly popular because consumers are also now kind of tapping into very niche things i think some of it is coming from fatigue to do with the pandemic some of it is also i think as shothik was saying this kind of culture of irrationality that exists and a lot of people are just not interested to maybe listen to what a journalist like me has to say so i think a lot of this has evolved as a response to the pandemic in some ways as well all right it's the age of misinformation and whatsapp university as it were and it's really unfortunate that it's come to this kalpana i want to bring you back into this discussion and i want to talk about briefly the science of a uh, vaccine and also bring in previous pandemics that you've written about previous pandemics of the century as precursors leading up to the build up of the current one that we are facing are you absolutely stumped at the pace at which this vaccine research took place the scale at which emergency approvals were sought and given and are vaccines really the magical elixir that humankind is hoping it is going to be i understand the question and the rhetoric in it even when i ask it because the data on vaccines is still coming in and i'm mindful of that also the virus continues to mutate but what is specifically different about the medical research you know the entire architecture of medical research all the money that goes into it uh, in this specific pandemic as compared to the earlier nipah zika influenza viruses of the very century now that's a very large question to answer but i'll try you know although these vaccines have appeared now at warp speed the science has been happening technology is exploding and because of this explosion in technology new methods of understanding the various cellular components of the body and the way they act is zooming so there are a million threads of investigation which have been going on for the last 20 years some of them have been stalled some of these ideas actually hark back even a century we didn't have the technology but the blueprint was there the idea was there so it's not really that new science but what is wonderful is that a lot of it is thinking out of the box and now that you're saying that the virus mutates now the question in everyone's mind is every day there's a new vaccine which is being tested and coming out now in the last one month okay actually this is the time when in the next few weeks we will get a more cohesive picture of what's happening first of all a vaccine can only be understood in real time when it's being used so you we were we're just getting that information for some of the vaccines the beauty of it is that any vaccine that you administer is going to depend only on you because it's the way it stimulates your immune system to respond so your immune system must be capable of responding now for instance in india you have 60% of the population if not more in a state of advanced inflammation we have one in five diabetics we have obesity which is rampant and we have starvation which is the opposite of obesity and the same all these dictate a poor immune status now suddenly like anu just used the word cannibalizing how covid is also cannibalize other illnesses suddenly there is no tuberculosis there is no nothing there is no illness except covid 19 so what has happened to those people to that suddenly everyone is 
Even a cold, the only diagnosis is COVID. So the point here about vaccines is, yes, vaccines are a way to stimulate your immunity. But that's all they are. You are still yourself. You cannot wait for policy to make these differences. Policy will give you a vaccine. But it is up to you to give the best chance you can for that vaccine to act. Now, which vaccine is good? Which vaccine is bad? Finally, in the final count, they're all good. And you're all bad to the same extent. When you see bad effects, like you know, there are some people with blood clots, there are some people with cardiac inflammation, there are some people with X, Y, Z. These group of side effects or ill effects are common to all vaccines all the time throughout time. It would be wonderful, and it's not impossible in the near future, to have one vaccine for every illness, imagined, known, and imaginable. It will act at a different point. We're just beginning to know and understand the human body. We know nothing. Every day we learn something more. And it's brilliant and exciting only as long as you can apply it to your own life. And that's what we needed to do here with COVID. It would have been quite simple to do it. It's still simple. And now that policy has failed us, the state has failed us, we still have ourselves, no? We are very intelligent people. Right now, we've been very stupid. But maybe we'll get smart. Thank you, Halpana. Uh, I want to bring in Shautik here. Uh, in, in this very evocative and heartbreaking essay that he writes in, in the anthology I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, Shatik writes about Dr. Ravi Doshi, who is a pulmonologist uh, in Madhya Pradesh uh, at a government hospital, who has, between March 2020 and now, treated thousands of patients with COVID as an intensivist, had to stay away from his family for, for months, you know, before he could see them, before it was safe for him to see them. Eventually, succumbed to COVID himself and then recovered and, you know, got back to treating his patients. Shautik has tailed this one doctor and has kept in touch with him through multiple phone conversations and he writes about this in this essay. Uh, do you want to talk about this case? Yeah, so the first kind of uh, trigger was there was a small outbreak we heard in Indore in the early phases of the pandemic last year, sometime in March. And I heard that all these patients were being taken to this big hospital, a thousand bed hospital in the heart of Indore. And I decided to find out what was going on in the heartland, so to say, you know, beyond the cities. And I had basically done a story on Dhilwara in Rajasthan where there had been an early outbreak and they had one of the earliest kind of lockdowns before India locked down on the, I think, 26th of March. But Bilwara in Rajasthan had locked down before that. It's a textile town. And I was talking to people there and some of the very first cases were there after Kerala. So when I called up uh, this hospital, they connected me to this young doctor who was in charge of the respiratory care unit. And he told me something very interesting. He said, he told me in May, I think, that, uh, you know, uh, since early March, I've been getting a lot of patients at my resident, you know, the, he, had a, he had a clinic in his residence. It's a two-story house in, in the, on the ground floor is his chamber. And he says, I was getting uh, a lot of patients with sniffles and mysterious fevers and sore throat uh, that I was not able to understand. And he said, you know, I send them for various tests. Those tests came back, you know, 
reasonably fine. And within like 20 days of the first, uh, when he kept seeing those patients, he said, and then he shut the clinic. And then he, he said the moment they started coming to hospital and, you know, they had COVID. So I think this was one of the first kind of indications one got that the virus was circulating in the community, you know, because there was this big controversy over uh, community transmission. If you remember, the government kept on denying and then we kind of quibbled over the semantics and what is community and what is transmission and so on. And it went on agonizingly for more than a year. But then, you know, people like Dr. Doshi were saying, uh, Worse, you know, this virus is in the community. You know, I, I, you know, I think all those patients who came suddenly are an uptick in March, first week of March, uh, second week of March, and I don't get those kind of patients at the end of the year. So he was pretty much confident that the virus was already in the community. And that started my, and then there was the first wave outbreak and Indore was one of the worst affected cities. So basically through the year, kind of, I kept in touch with him a couple of times uh, every month. And interestingly, every time there would be a fall in cases at the hospital. Remember, it's a thousand bed hospital, which was, I think, extended to 1500 beds. It became an all COVID hospital. So all those beds were COVID. Uh, Dr. Dosi had uh, done his pulmonary medicine in Bangalore. And then uh, he served in a TB hospital for a very long time. So he kind of worried a lot about uh, his TB patients. He said he had 400 patients and they're all kind of disappeared. Uh, during the pandemic and he says I can't I don't know what's happening to them are they alive are they dead he keeps on telling me look this TB is going to be the next big thing and all these TB patients have literally gone underground because they have no access to uh, regular care healthcare, and medicines and so on so it has been quite a roller coaster journey with Dr. Doshi you know whenever the things were returning to normal he would always tell me that look you know it's not over uh, he's, he's a very spirited man it's not over you know I hope People behave properly. He was always, always agonizing over the way people uh, were not behaving properly. He started making YouTube videos at home, you know, uh, uh, to put it out on Facebook with his children that, you know, this you should be wearing masks, you should be uh, keeping social distancing. He's a very positive, uh, jovial person, a man of very strict work ethics. You know, he worked for about 18, 17, 18 hours. Uh, for about five, six, I think four, five months, first six months, he didn't go home. Then he contracted COVID in hospital. Then he again had quarantined himself. Uh, initially, he was uh, saying that I'm getting patients from Indore and Bhopal. And then he said, I'm getting them from 250 kilometers away, 300 kilometers away from Dhar, from central Madhya Pradesh. You know, this, you know when, when they say that this virus actually kind of spread to rural India in the second wave, that's not true. You know, that's not entirely true. A lot of rural India in the first wave was affected. I, you know, it didn't get the coverage uh, that it got during the second wave. For example, he kept on telling me throughout from last year, from I think June, that I'm getting a lot of patients from two, 250 kilometers and people are dying at home. He said, told me last year, people are dying at home. So, you know, this is all kind of caught up in this whole undercounting thing and what we've counted and what we've not counted and uh, whether, you know, they had uh, they had uh, uh, the facilities ready, but a lot of these things that we are getting really worked up about in the second wave, like undercounting, spread of disease in, in rural areas, the oxygen crisis, you know, all of these happened. All of these happened to a certain level in the first wave. I remember in, in, in September last year, I was getting calls from oxygen dealers in Maharashtra, in Madhya Pradesh, saying, you know, we are running out of oxygen, you know, because uh, and there were oxygen deaths, you know, somebody had switched off the main supply in a Madhya Pradesh hospital last year and people died. So I think 
uh, when, when the second wave washed over, you know, the numbers were big and everything got amplified and we kind of said, oh my God, oh my God. But you know, uh, what I'm saying is we could have prepared better in each wave because all these signs were there during the first wave. To say that you didn't know that there could be an oxygen crisis in the second wave. No, no, I agree with you. Uh, I think we've ignored any and every red flag um, in terms of preparedness. I mean, as late as March 2021, between July 2020 and March 2021, the ICMR hadn't even updated the course of treatment meant to be followed by, uh, you know, doctors uh, in hospitals, etc. But yeah, really heartbreaking story of Dr. Ravi Dosi and many, many such frontline workers, countless such frontline workers between last year and this year, not only in India, but around the world. I have a question, a bit of a devil's advocate question for uh, Anu primarily, but then also uh, anyone else on the table here can also chime in here. I had an earlier conversation last year with another journalist, Vidya Krishnan, who also covers healthcare, particularly tuberculosis, and Aruna Roy and Dr. Bhatkande, where we looked at the possibility of whether nationalization of healthcare in India is something we need to work towards. A, we need to work towards something as the right to healthcare as a fundamental right, which currently remains to be done, and whether a national healthcare policy would work in a society, polity, and country like India. Anu, thoughts? I think this is one of those eternal questions that we will ask in India for a long time. I don't know where the answers are. I think we do need a nationalized health system in a much more massive way than we currently do have from our public sector, simply because this country is so unequal and uh, the private sector is great for, well, it's not great, but it's, it's, it's an option for paying customers like me, but it's just not an option for people in the rest of this country. So we do need a more robust public health system. I don't think we will reach a situation where the private sector is done for and uh, we only have a public health system where everybody from Ambani to Anu is getting the same kind of health care. I don't think that will happen. I think also speaking in absolutes in a chaotic setup like India is risky because then you just won't get anywhere. So what I would much prefer is a more constructive approach of gradually but quickly doing whatever needs to be done to widen the public health system's reach. Because I sometimes feel bad about some of these people who I've also been talking to for years, who are now kind of just relegated to this realm of being activists or activisty or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but a lot of them have said the kind of things and have pushed the kind of buttons that we, uh, you know, that, when, that needed to have been pushed for a very long time when it comes to the public sector. And we've known that there is no incentive for the private sector to, let's say, get into rural areas or get into, uh, even in urban areas, to go into areas that uh, where, where people are not going to be able to pay. So, you know, these are not people who the state can or should be allowed to neglect. And so from that point of view, there will need to be a crowding of the public sector Shortik, Kalpana, same question. I don't know. I think the private sector has a role. I don't, I, I kind of, I'm not a big votary uh, of completely nationalizing or going one way. From what I understand is that the public sector needs to get much better. You know, if you are uh, now giving uh, some kind of health insurance to people, you're better ensured that the care quality is also good. There's no use giving an insurance to uh, vast loads of people and not uh, building up infrastructure and giving care. Because I do believe 
And a lot of doctors have told me this, that a lot of people have died in the second wave because of uh, very bad suboptimal early care when they were shunted from hospital to hospital. The protocols were wrong. Uh, you know, doctors were pumping them with medicines, uh, steroids and what have you. It's about generally creating lots of good doctors and nurses and paying them well and in time and building uh, proper infrastructure in the public sector. So that's what it needs to do rather than think of like moving everything to the government. Your pay, how many of, this, of the doctors who have been frontline workers, how many have been nurses? I would even put the nurses and the, and the ward boys higher than the doctors. These people have risked their lives as frontline workers over the last year, year and a half. How many of them have even got their salaries on time? Should we not be paying them four times what they're normally entitled to for the kind of risk they have exposed themselves to? I'll add ASHA workers to this as well. Of course, of course. And ASHA workers are getting the worst deal just now. And since you spoke about this, a lot, so much of rural healthcare depends entirely on ASHA girls. One more thing I will add, which is that the worst thing that can happen to us as a people is if the state takes control of our bodies, which it does in a way, as soon as you have a COVID vaccination with the prime minister's face on it, it is offensive to the independence of the Indian citizen. It is an offense against your own credibility. The prime minister is very welcome to sit in his seat, but he has no business on a vaccination card. You cannot link this to various other things as a form of identity. During the Bombay plague, we have a marvelous example of how the state became militant. It entered people's homes. It uh, harassed them to that extent that people got furious about it. It is no different from asking someone, let me come and look in your freezer, maybe you got beef with it. So it's just not right. When you yeah. say nationalization, it's a very scary word now. The only piece of real estate that the Indian citizen owns is his or her own body. So it should belong to you, not to anyone else, not even to your family. Nobody has rights over your body except you. That's a very important point, the sovereignty of the body and you know how much should the state sort of step in into the management of life and death, as it were. Yes. And when should it recede? Uh, that's a very interesting sort of distinction to make. I am tempted to take in one last question, though we are way out of time. Kalpana mentioned the age of the Anthropocene and with the imminent sort of climate disasters that have been wonderfully lined up for us in the century. Now, I understand none of us are futurists in that sense. And, you know, the present itself seems to be so overwhelming to grapple that, you know, a day at a time sometimes, a year at a time is already enough but purely for speculative purposes. And we have much to learn from, from the past and history as well, history of pandemics, epidemics, and disasters. And we know that there is a lot that remains to be seen in the remainder of centuries in these categories. But what sort of preparedness can we arm ourselves with? Does the current pandemic, and that is my question, have any lessons for an imminent future? We are going to be facing a lot more worse pandemics than COVID-19 if we don't alter our way of life, if we continue destroying the planet, if we continue destroying habitats, we are going to be facing diseases we can't even imagine today. 
So there are two jobs ahead of us. One is we have to reverse the damage we have done on our bodies, which is a very easy thing to do. So let's get smart and reverse it. Otherwise, the next pandemic may actually mean species extinction. It's not as impossible a thought because when you see how a species blinks out, it is not like how we, Dalvaris tells you about the dinosaurs dying in one boom. So, Gaya, you know, that took 8 million years. Anyone else? Lessons for the future? Yeah, can I come? Yeah, please. No, I think I completely uh, agree with Kalpana. And I've been thinking about this and I'm, I'm thinking that, look, and, um, you know, there's one thing about inequality, which I think is a huge role. Uh, in America, you know, we have uh, data coming out that blacks and Hispanics uh, bore the brunt of infection and deaths. And one of the reasons is that is the community which is underprivileged and uh, obese and uh, has all those inflammatory diseases and diabetes and things like that. So that, that that's kind of down to inequality. In India, we see uh, something exactly opposite in a sense that uh, we have people who are well-to-do, uh, middle class, and we are all sick with something or the other lifestyle diseases and things like that. And of course, there are the poor who are suffering from tuberculosis and so on and so forth because, uh, you know, they're not accessing public care. I think we are in a situation in India with government after government. My reading is that there's been an unfortunate cruel political disincentive to keep us healthy and educated. And it's perverse, but it's got political reasons behind that. And um, I'm also struck over the course of this pandemic to see that there continues to be political loyalty to any party that uh, offers us nothing more in terms of health and education, but they are able to tap into various emotional traumas that we all are trying to fulfill. So in terms of, you know, how this can change and what kind of preparedness, which is your question, either it comes from the top or it comes from us demanding that we want better health and education, or at least us rejecting people who are not going to offer us this, but who want to see us unhealthy and uneducated. That's very well put. Um, thank you, all of you. This has been a wonderful discussion, very illuminating. Uh, thank you for bringing the candid, frank, intimate perspectives uh, that you've held um, along the course of your careers to this discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Anu, Shatik, Kalpana, thanks a lot. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. This was Beyond the Lines by Roli. If you liked this show, then subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and check out all our books on rolibooks.com. That is R-O-L-I-B-O-O-K-S dot com. Since you are here, you can get a 20% discount on all the featured books in this podcast series with a special coupon code BTL20 on cmykbookstore.com. That is C-M-Y-K-B-O-O-K-S-T-O-R-E dot com. We'll be back soon with our next episode. In the meantime, do tell others about our podcast and stay tuned. <laughs>